Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Let us turn to the announcement to Elizabeth that Mary had arrived and the announcement of our Lord to John the Baptist in her womb, which is bound up with the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verses 39 to 56. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you will give us daughters like Mary. We thank you for our mothers who are like Mary. We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Families are intimate, aren't they? Often too intimate. The church is a household, a church is a family, and a church is very intimate. And you can imagine that preaching a sermon on the Magnificat, the word comes simply from the beginning of what Mary says, which is, I magnify the Lord. So it's called the Magnificat. And you can imagine that preaching on the Magnificat is an extremely tender moment for a, a shepherd of a flock. Because as the shepherd prepares to preach that text, he has all these ewes and lambs in his mind. And he weighs the character of each ewe and each female lamb. And some of them inspire him, and some of them, shall we just say, don't. In the first service, there were about half this number of people, and about three-quarters of the way through the sermon, I turned to Annie Carell. I mean, not to Annie, to Kimmy. And I said, Kimmy, you have helped me so much. And I think, Kimmy, I mean, you know, we could choose a number of young girls in this room right now, but I think Kimmy is a good one. We all know young girls, and, and my wife, when I was in high school, I keep telling you, I have repented of my inclusive, neutered, politically correct language. I was born into an author and editor's home, so from an early age, Mary Lee and I knew the abuse of language, and Mary Lee taught me when I was, 
I think, a junior in high school that I should never refer to any member of the female sex as girl. It was demeaning. And so I would call junior high girls women. And I was so enlightened. <laughs> About 10 years ago, Mary Lee got sick of it and told me to stop it. But if you want to think about Mary, it really would be helpful for you to have the word girl in your vocabulary. Mary was certainly about 13 or 14, what we read here. She had just entered the period of womanhood. She was tender. She was what every woman who is a woman, A-N versus a woman, M-Y-N, what every female, as opposed to every lesbian, is. It is the definition of a lesbian that she is not vulnerable. It is the definition of a woman that she is vulnerable. Now, you might say, well, did you have to bring lesbians up? And I say, yes, I did. We live in the Western world. And... Every perverse sexuality is in our face all the time. And you need me to help you restore your 2020 vision about sexuality because it's assaulted everything but the hour I get you every week. And regardless of the sad crimes that have been committed against women that often have made them embrace lesbianism, it's all about control and losing vulnerability. number of ways that you can respond to abuse is children. You can res- but with women particularly, it is, it is almost always a repudiation of the intrinsic, of the vulnerability that's intrinsic to femininity. Whether it's manipulating men, hating men, becoming a man, it, it, it's all of a fabric. And there are a lot of enticements in this world for women giving up vulnerability. As a matter of fact, I would say that the main doctrine of the female sex that prevails in the Western world today is the repudiation of the vulnerability that's intrinsic to the weaker sex which is what Scripture calls women. All right? And it is impossible to preach the Magnificat without getting very personal in my mind and heart with every one of you women and your daughters. Because there is a battle... for womanhood, for the female sex, for what we used to call femininity, for what all of us know as motherhood. There is a battle, a desperate battle in the world over this today. And the church will never rise higher than the blessed Virgin Mary. And men will never be men, except by the support and leadership of women. Men need help. And that's what God gave us with a vulnerable woman. Now, I know there are a number of you sitting here saying, I tried that and to hell with it. I, I, I feel you in my heart. I do. But the abuse of a thing doesn't invalidate its proper use. And the proper use of womanhood is helpmate. And no, you don't have to be married to be a helpmate. Some of the women that have been most helpful to me in this church and in my life have been single, have been divorced, 
some of the women that are most helpful to me in this church right now are older women who are divorced and widowed. And so, no, you, you don't have to be a helpmate to men. You don't have to be married. Okay? I mean, for heaven's sakes, do any of you know Judy? My goodness. How would we have done the last five years without Judy? We would have all shot ourselves. I mean, Stephen, tell him. Tell him I tell the truth. <laughs> it's true. And our depressions as pastors have gone up and down based on where her children were moving. <laughs> you know? It was a wave we'd keep riding. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And so you don't have to be married to be a woman. Now, let's look at Mary. The account begins this way. It says, now at this time, Mary arose. Remember, this time was that an angel had come to Mary and said that she was going to have a child. And she said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I haven't known a man. How can I be fruitful? How can my womb have fruit in it if I haven't known a man? Right? It's a good question. And the angel says to her, no, 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 it's not a man. It's the Holy Spirit. It's like, Whoa. <laughs> yikes. She wasn't expecting that one. The Holy Spirit has impregnated her, made her pregnant. Now, that's pretty radical, <laughs> you know. And then the angel is very kind to Mary, much as God lowers himself to us through the um, sacraments, which are physical uh, promises and uh, clomping ons of us to God physically, holistic, organic, right? That's what sacraments are. What the angel does is the angel says, it's by the Holy Spirit, but, and he goes on and he says, guess what? She says, what? He says, Elizabeth is pregnant. The angel actually says, she who is called barren. I put this up on, on social media recently, and all hell broke loose. I mean, women were just frothing at the mouth that I would ever refer to this as a position that was uh, embarrassing, shameful, undignified, something that any woman would lament. They said that I only said that because I was a male chauvinist pig, and it was only men that looked down on women who weren't pregnant. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so, you're so smart. How did you see through me so easily? Well, if calling a woman barren is an indicator of male chauvinist pig, this angel was a male chauvinist pig. Because this angel names Elizabeth she who is called barren. And what he says is, she who's called barren is with child. Well, this blew Mary's mind. Mary's mind has, is being blown with everything that's said to her. She, she can't be pregnant. She's, she's engaged. No engaged woman, let alone a 13, 14-year-old girl, wants to be pregnant. I mean, eventually, in the proper time, things in place, but not now. It jeopardizes, and we see it did jeopardize her relationship with the man she was engaged to because when he heard she was pregnant, he decided to put her away. Now, he was going to do it quietly. He was a gentleman, but that was the end of that relationship. Whatever love there was, <laughs> wasn't so much love anymore because obviously with her, uh, there was somebody else. And then the angel said, no, 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 this is by the Holy Spirit. So Mary's getting shocked. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What's Joseph going to think? And then, hey, guess what? Just to prove that this can actually happen, your aunt, whatever she was, she's pregnant. And Mary's like, are you serious? She who is barren, she who is old and barren, is pregnant. Well, of course Mary does what Mary does. Immediately, she gets up and she 
goes out into the hill country. I like the fact that it says out in the hills. The city that Elizabeth lived in was out in the hills, out in the boonies, right? She goes out in the boonies, and she arrives at Elizabeth's house. So you can picture what happens. She gets to the house. She is cranked because this pregnancy of her aunt is going to give her faith to believe the unbelievable thing that she's been told, which is that she bears within her her Lord. Okay? So she comes to the door, and she calls out a greeting. We, you know, we know what it was. She comes to the door, she gets in the house, and she cries out, Elizabeth! Lizzie! And Lizzie hears the voice, and as soon as she hears the voice, this little one that you can kill by going online and buying drugs to kill it. You with me? This little one leaps for joy. This little one barely there nestled in his mother's womb. This little one, we would say, has no personhood. But he has a call from God. And his call is to announce his Savior. And so guess what? He be cognizant of the presence of the one he is to announce, and he be announcing it. (laughs) it's like Curtis singing. What are you going to do? Kill him? Until you do, he'll sing. And here is this beautiful scene of these two women. I don't think there's a more precious, sweet, um, beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous scene in all of Scripture. I don't think there's one of them. Unless maybe it's in uh, the prophecies of the marriage feast of the Lamb. These two women being women. And how are they women? They're women by being pregnant. And I know those of you who are so old, I'm younger than that now. You say, are you saying women are defined by pregnancy? You know, of course that's what you're saying. And here's my answer. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? No! I am not saying women are defined by pregnancy. And you go, oh, I thought you were, oh, man. I mean, I never know what to expect from you, but this, this encourages me. This encourages me. And I say, wait a second, what encouragement? You say, well, you just said women aren't defined by pregnancy. I say, oh, well, what I meant was women aren't just defined by pregnancy, but also by the absence of it. You should all be laughing now. I mean, do you get what I just said? Yes, motherhood defines woman. It defines woman. Oh, my goodness. Everybody's quiet and uptight. And Oh, did he really say that? He doubled down. Well, what did you think Tim Bailey was going to do? I mean, really. Do you remember the name that woman is given at the beginning of Genesis? She shall be called what? Eve, because she is life giver. Are we really so weary of this world that we have stopped honoring womanhood for what it is, which is life giver?
And so here, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, one of the most beautiful hymns that's sung in Scripture, which is the Magnificat, it's defined by pregnant women with little babies in their wombs, little babies that by the billions are being killed in this world today. By the billions. And this last week it was announced that the government is now going to allow women to order the drugs to kill their unborn children and to receive them in the mail. There's no need for anybody to ever know. You have a fight with your husband this week. Then you take a pregnancy test. And you know, just this week, you might not want to be pregnant. And no one ever needs to know. Just like pornography. And how do you women feel about pornography? Invading the privacy of your home. But now murder invades the privacy of our home. Do you know that at the time of Mary and Elizabeth, there were drugs that killed the unborn children? Do you know that the New Testament forbids Christians' use of them? In fact, Revelation refers to those in hell as those who use, and the Greek word is pharmacopoeia. That's where we get our word pharmacy from. And those drugs were used for a number of things, but one of the principal things was actually abortion. Listen, we cannot rejoice in the beauty of the Magnificat without realizing what a temptation it would have been to Mary to kill her unborn child. Because that's precisely the kind of unborn child who's killed today. You talk about an inconvenient pregnancy, that was Mary. It blew up every plan of her life. But it's inconceivable that Mary would kill her little baby. And you say, well, yeah, but that's because she and Elizabeth wanted their children, every child should be wanted, you know. And I say, come on, remember what I said about Mary? She certainly had, has any woman ever gotten pregnant and not had some intense ambivalence about her pregnancy? I mean, really, seriously, do you know any mothers? So honestly... Every mother is ambivalent about her pregnancy because she doesn't know what be coming. And it is difficult. Pregnancy is difficult. Late pregnancy is difficult. Childbearing is difficult. And then it is difficult to be owned the rest of your life by that child. You have no idea what that child is going to do. And Mary was pierced by the sword of the suffering of her Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you tell me that it was just a clear blessing good for Mary to find out she was pregnant, and therefore she had a wanted child, and Elizabeth had a wanted child, and every child wanted. No, 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 no. No, no, no. It is the definition of godliness to welcome pregnancy. Did you hear that? You say, oh, well, that's easy for you to say. You were married and had children. I say, no, actually, our first one was when we weren't married, and it was shameful that my wife was pregnant. Do you think that we couldn't have aborted our little one? You say, well, yeah, but look, it's worked out well for you. What if your wife had been raped? And I say to you, okay, since we are Christians and can't seem to get it into our heads, let's go to a pagan and ask him what he thinks about this. Okay, just, just a pagan, all right? Because if Christians don't understand it, maybe pagans do. I found often that liberals have much more honesty and wisdom than Christians. Have you ever, any of you ever noticed that? It's, it's such a joy to talk to honest liberals. You know, We disagree, and we agree that we disagree. 
never get a Christian to agree to disagree. So anyhow, about 35 years ago, Mary Lee and I read a book out loud as we drove across the country, and the book was a book called Sometimes a Great Notion. Any of you ever read it? It's about lumberjacks in Oregon. And it's written by the same man that wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. His name is Ken Kesey. Nurse Ratchet, you all there? So Ken Kesey is being interviewed by a West Coast publication called, uh, oh, what was that called? The Realist. I think that was the name of the, the rag, The Realist. And they're talking to him, and he's being real sort of pagan, cosmic, kind of yin-yangish, you know, and profound. But then they get to the issue of abortion, and they ask, now mind you, this is just a rank West Coast pagan publication interviewing the hero of my generation who did the cuckoo's nest, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? I mean, the guy's just... You know. And they say to him, what do you think about abortion? He says, well, abortion is the worst karma of our revolution. Well, of course, that shocked the, you know, the editorial staff. And you know, they were like trying to find their feet under them. You know? And they said, what? You know, how, what? What? You know? And uh, he said, yeah, it, it's awful. So they talked a little bit, and then they said to him, well, what would you do if your wife was raped and became pregnant? And he said, because your neighbor plants the corn, you don't go out and plow it under. This is what Ken Kesey said, stupid pagan. Well, they were frothing at the mouth at this point, so they said to him, what on earth? Are you, what on earth? Okay, that's fine for a male chauvinist pig like you to say. They didn't say these words, but you can feel them. They say, but what would your wife say? <laughs> and so Kesey says, why don't you call her up and ask? So they get on the phone. And they call her up, and they say, uh, you know, whatever her name is, Sharon, uh, you know, we have your husband here, and he's just committed the worst faux pas that any member of the revolution could possibly commit at this enlightened day after Haight-Ashbury and before AIDS. Your husband says that you shouldn't plow the corn under because your neighbor plants it. She says, let me get this straight. Are you asking whether if I were raped, would I have an abortion? And they say, yeah. And she says, no. Don't patronize the Blessed Virgin Mary. Do not tell yourself that this woman did the only option open to her. Do not tell yourself that she was uneducated that she had not had the benefit of being raised in a proud middle-class home where her options had been explained to her. Do not convince yourself that Mary was a young girl whose highest aspiration was to spend her life barefoot and pregnant. Come on. There is another way to live as a woman than the decadent womanhood that has taken the Western world today. And that other way is the way of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And all, you know what I'm going to say, all generations call her blessed. Oh, my Mary. How can you not love Mary? And, of course, some of you would say, well, I love Mary. 
but I doesn't mean I want to be married. So what do you want to be, Hillary? Chelsea? I've spent much of my life pitying Chelsea. Can you imagine having to walk to that helicopter holding your father's hand? That poor woman. Everybody across my life has told me to shut up about womanhood. They're sick of me. And I keep saying to them, you know, is there a more evangelistic doctrine than fatherhood today? We have a world filled with girls and women who have never had a father. The whole world is screaming out of hunger and thirst for true fatherhood. And here we serve God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we want to shut up about womanhood and manhood. Christ has a bride, and the bride is the church. And he has purchased us. And now he's washing us. How? He's washing us with the water of the word. That's what the Bible says. And we want to shut up about womanhood, about what it means to be responsive to a God who takes initiative with us. Are you with me? You want to shut up about manhood and womanhood? How can we respond to God in the appropriate way if we have denied the essential waitingness of womanhood? What is woman waiting for? She's waiting for a man to take the initiative. I speak to you of a mystery. I'm speaking to you of Christ in the church. We can recite the poem, The Hound of Heaven, and take such delight that God is a dog, a coon, coon dog. You know, he's baying after us. The hound of heaven is baying after us, not leaving us alone. Coming for us. He smells us. He's chosen us. He's after us. The hound of heaven, you know. We can take great delight in this because it's a dog and a hunter, right? <laughs> you know? But what if it's a man and a woman? What if what we have to testify to is when a man loves a woman, is this not the song that matches in our human experience the beauty of Christ and his church? And you say, well, I'm a man, I'm not a woman. And I say, well, as a member of the bride of Christ, your responsiveness to God is pictured in the responsiveness of the bride to the groom. Isn't that why we all cry at weddings? Do you ever cry about anything in your life, men? Do you ever cry about anything? Do you ever cry about anything? I had uh, an experience that was both uh, a little bit threatening and a little bit uh, sort of, you know, they tell you that as you get older, you cry more. I find this to be true. <laughs> and so this week, somebody somewhere, I don't remember where it was. Oh, yeah, I do. It was on Sanityville. Our, uh, you can be a part of this, too, our discussion board that Joseph and Lucas have put together. Wonderful. And somebody put up on, on Sanityville... Uh, Uh, a flash performance by the Air Force Band and Choir of, uh, it began with Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring and then it went into one or two other Christmas carols. And I just started crying. You know, they're in the Air and Space Museum and these people are all 
uh, you know, first guy sits down, I think it was his cello, and he starts playing his cello. Nobody sort of notices at first. And then some other guys come in, one with a double bass. I think his name was Andy Anderson. And uh, then it seemed like all of a sudden that place filled up with every musician who's ever been a part of this church. And they were playing Yesu, Joy of Man's Design. And pretty soon in came the flutes, in came... Near the end, a harp came in, and I thought, there's grace, except it was a man. I thought they had a rule against men playing harps. I thought it had to be blonde women. (laughs) I don't know what's going on, you know. I felt the earth move under my feet, the sky tumbling. And I just found myself crying. They cut up to the balcony, so all the people began to gather, and, and, they, and they made a, an audience around the band, the director. And they had shown a couple of uh, women up in the balcony, and all of a sudden the women took off the clothes that were over their uniforms, and they had mics, and they began to sing. They said, joy of man's desire. In Washington, in the Smithsonian, in the Air and Space Museum, everyone was being called to worship Jesus. And I have to tell you, the tears, you know, it was like the middle of the morning. Mary was in the kitchen. I was very happy she didn't walk in. And I find as I get older, the the older I get, the more I hate, absolutely hate, rock concerts. I don't care if it's Nashville Christian Museums, musicians that do it, or if it's, I don't care who it is, I hate them. I hate rock concerts. I've gone to every one you can imagine. And you talk about idolatry. But then I remember coming to Bloomington and I heard that St. Matthew's Passion was going to be performed at St. Charles, right next door to the church I was serving. And it was in the middle of the afternoon. And so I hightailed it after I got done preaching. And yes, back then, I did get done preaching. (laughs) I hightailed it over and got a seat up in the balcony. And I looked out over the nave, you know, over the sanctuary. And it was St. Matthew's Passion. And I looked at the members of the choir. And, you know, I knew that the members of the choir who were singing the words of the evangelist, Matthew, I knew that a ton of them were gay. And I had such joy to think that God, at that time when AIDS was exploding, that God was leading people to worship him through music, whose entire lives had been rebellion against him. It gave me such joy. Such joy. I thought this is better than if it were done by the choir of our church. Because who is it who worships Jesus? No righteous man has ever worshipped Jesus. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And here was the Air Force Choir and the Air Force Band. And all of them were leading everybody in the Air and Space Museum in that utterly world-weary town of Washington, D.C., in that utterly proud institution known as the Smithsonian. (laughs) 
And here they all were, absolutely transfixed. You watch face after face after face. They were transfixed. The fact that extemporaneously, seemingly, you know, flash choir, right? That they were all singing to the glory. And all, everything they did was praise to Jesus Christ. They didn't do any of this crap. Christmas crap. No, 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 no. They did praise to baby Jesus. And I just cried. Don't your hearts hunger and thirst after God's creation giving Jesus the glory he deserves? Don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are we really going to be idolaters forever? And give our worship to the scum of the earth because the lights are on them and you had to pay 150 to get in? There is another way. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. Mary was not at a yes concert. Or Dylan. She was a little girl. And apparently she didn't know better. (laughs) Her soul exalts the Lord magnifies the Lord. The Magnificat, my soul, magnifies the Lord. It's interesting that it says Mary said. It doesn't say she shouted loudly. That's what it says about Elizabeth. No, it would have been inappropriate for this young teenage girl to shout loudly. She knew deference, feminine deference. She knew age deference. And she said, okay, She didn't shout. She said, my soul exalts, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced. Listen, I'm cranked about God, my Savior. He is like my joy. There's nothing that makes me happier than God. I live to praise him, and deep inside... I take joy in him, my Savior. You know that there is a lot of discussion about where this Magnificat comes from. And if you read the Hastings Dictionary of the New Testament, they have thousands and thousands of words about whether, in fact, this person or that person or the other person or the tradition or the, the, the New Testament worship of the church was read back into as Matthew wrote the gospel. And One of the most frequent things is this actually was written by Luke and placed in Mary's mouth. Now, this, of course, is a male perspective on life. You know, no woman could be profound. She can be pregnant, and pregnancy is profound. I mean, a little, a newborn baby, now that's profound. But she almost does it against her will. But you want writing that's good? We had a fight last, was it last year? Or two years ago? Where Michael, <laughs> Michael and her mother went at it. I think it's the only time I've ever seen it. Michael and her mother, I was not even. <laughs> you know, I wasn't. And, and the essential issue was whether women could write good literature. And Michael was taking the position that Mary could have actually, and it had to do with To Kill a Mockingbird, if you can follow what's going on here, and who actually wrote, you know, whether... (laughs) Any of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. And I mean, Michael was hot. Why? Well, because she thought her mother thought that women couldn't do good literature. She didn't actually think that. But you thought maybe 
I thought, and that's why mommy was saying it, right? I think that's, I think that's more, that's more sort of what was going on, you know? <laughs> it was a fun one, you know? Can you imagine educated men from England spending their lives discussing whether or not it was this man or this man or Luke who wrote the Magnificat? Would you look at the Magnificat and tell me, is it sophisticated? And the answer is no, it's not sophisticated. It's very simple. And you say, well, yeah, but look, it says, well, count me blessed. None of us talk like that. Well, that's because men translated it. Okay? He has regard for the humble state. That's not how we talk. He sees that I'm weak and poor. He sees my humility. He sees that I'm dissed by everyone. He sees that everybody's condescending to me. He has regard for my humble estate. It is not sophisticated. What it is, is godly. This be a woman. And she not be roaring. And numbers too big to ignore. This is a woman who has embraced the essential nature of womanhood, which is to be vulnerable and to be humble. The very existence of a female body induces humility. And the humility grows when she reaches puberty. And any of you who deny this are fools. God was pleased to make woman. And the vulnerability and responsivity that is intrinsic to womanhood is drop-dead gorgeous. You ever see a hummingbird go in a rose? And I'm talking a hummingbird. Not even a bee. Where is the beauty? Well, the beauty is what has called out to the hummingbird. The rose is beautiful. There is not one man who has ever been born that God has not placed in him a love for woman. Not one. Not one. And those who twist sexuality up so much, defying the design of God. If you're in a restaurant with two gay men, one of them is a woman. Because man loves woman. And if you're in a restaurant with two lesbians, man loves woman. I speak to you of a mystery because I speak to you of Christ and his church. And Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, is a woman. And there is nothing more beautiful to man, every man who has ever existed, than woman. And you say, well, what about Jesus? And I say, oh, okay, Jesus. But after Jesus, woman. You say, well, what about a beautiful sunrise? I say, nope. Woman trumps it. You say, well, what about a, what about a like, you know, a 15-pound bass? No, woman. You say, well, what about a little baby? And I say, who gave that baby to you? And you say, Woman. I say, see, woman. 
my soul magnifies the Lord. I praise God. That's what she's saying. My soul praises God. And my spirit, she goes deeper, my spirit has rejoiced. Now, this is, this is her normal steady-state economy, this woman, this little girl, has rejoiced in God my Savior. He saved her. For, this is why, he has had regard. He, he, he's noticed me. He's seen me. You know, can you imagine how many women who are pregnant living in the hill country of Indiana are seen by Bloomingtonians? Oh, my goodness. But not God. He has regard. He notices. He sees the humble state of his bond slave. Well, okay, bond slave, you know. Oh, that's sweet. You know, did you read your footnotes? If you have an NASB, nobody carries our Bible anymore. If you read your footnote here, the NASB says, you know, literally, female slave. But you know, it's so nice to have scholars, men, who will change female slave to bond slave, whatever that is, you know. You know, bond, bail bond. You know, bond ammy? What's bond? Slave, bond slave. It must be something other than slave. But no, what it really is is female slave. So what is she saying? Well, what she's saying is he sees the humiliation that is constant in my life as his slave, his woman slave. As a woman slave, to him, he sees my humility, and he notices it. Of course Luke couldn't have written this. Honestly, Luke wrote this. And then she brags, humble brags, but brags. She says, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Check this out. Everybody from now on going to say, I'm the bomb diggity. <laughs> it's so sweet. He saw me. He, you didn't. He, he saw me. You didn't see me. You put me into the humiliation. You dissed me. You were not even noticing. He saw me. And from now on, everybody to the end is going to say, I'm blessed. Now, of course, she didn't have my attitude, you know. But, I mean, she's just cranked about how God singled her out, despite the fact that there was nothing about her to single her out. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So now she's channeling the strength and power of God. She doesn't have any, but she knows her Savior has power and strength. And she then goes on and she says, his mercy is upon generation after generation. And then she qualifies it toward those who fear him. Well, Mary, I mean, she's so simple, uneducated. But I mean, who's more educated, a Wheaton College student that doesn't fear God or a Mary who does? Is there a more desperate condition in the church today than the church being filled with souls who have no fear of God? The mercy of God, she doesn't hesitate in proclaiming it for those who fear him. This sweet little girl. She continues, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has. And you think, oh my goodness. Can we just, for one second, just, just be graceful? You know, do we have to speak the negative? She obviously had not been educated. Because look what she says next. 
He has done mighty deeds with his arm, and we want to hear about, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and, and you know, the, you know, the, you know the, the Red Sea stood on end, and the angels came, and, you know, and the dead were raised, and, you know, all that stuff. She says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. How many of our young women today who are 13, 14, 15 would ever publicly testify to God scattering those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart? I'm telling you, if we had a teenage girl who was young who dared to open her mouth at the Thanksgiving service and say that, she would get her comeuppance from her mother when she went back to her seat. What on earth were you thinking? Tonight's to be a happy night. (laughs) You know? Well, trust me, Mary was happy. And one of the things that made her happy was that God scatters with his strong arm. He scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Oh, my goodness. Don't we live in a day when we ought to be happy about that? I mean, honestly, come on. Come on. But she's not done. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Now we're all channeling this one, right? Masks, vaccines. Oh, yeah, we're on this one. Oh, yeah, he brings down the rulers, the tyranny. And then she feels no um, contradiction, internal inconsistency, to immediately flip completely over and say, and he has exalted those who were humble. In other words, she doesn't have this false antithesis between what's grace and, and what's justice. You know what I'm saying? She takes as much joy as a young girl in her teenage years in the strength of God's arm against the proud and the rich and the filled as she takes in him lifting up the humble. All God's perfections exist in perfect harmony in the godly heart of this little girl. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the United States away empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Do you remember what Moses said to Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 7. He said to Israel, God's chosen people, he said, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And then we get to the end. And it's an end that's very similar to the end of the nativity scene, where the shepherds come, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And after they had worshipped him, do you remember what it says? It says, and the shepherds, what? And the shepherds returned. Where did they return? Pew. They returned to the dung of this life, to their sheep. They had work to do. And so we read at the end of here, it says, and Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. All right. This is the account. This is, these are the words of Mary. So what point is to be made? Well, I've been making it all along, but listen. We cry when we see a flash choir and a flash band giving glory to God, because deep in our hearts, what we want is everything to be made right. And there is nothing that is higher than all nature singing, all creation adoring our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the supreme purpose of our existence. Man's chief end is to glorify God. 
And we know that we should not be glorifying ourselves. And we know that when we seek glory, that we are fighting against God because he says that his name is jealous. God is an exclusivist when it comes to glory. He owns it. And when you look at all the people that God has lifted up into positions of leadership and authority, what's the theme? Was Moses looking to be a leader in authority 40 years in the wilderness? Was the apostle Paul looking to be a leader in authority? He goes down as soon as he sees Jesus and becomes a believer. He goes out into essentially the wilderness also. What about David? (laughs) David's out with the sheep. What about Saul? Saul's hiding in the luggage. Don't ever follow a spiritual leader who tells you he's important. Don't ever do it. Don't read them. Don't listen to them. Have nothing to do with them. It is impossible for a man to use the word of God to get money and fame for himself and to be a good man. Ho, 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 ho. Now, mind you, I I was a good boy. I did not name names. That's one application because God delights to use vessels who are humble, who are weak, who are young, who are women. Okay, so that's one application. The second application is love this church. Love this church. You say, well, why would I love this church? Because this church is filled with women who have given themselves to weakness, to pregnancy, to femininity, to waiting, to repentance. And it's because of these women that we men have grown in godliness. It's not just true that the wife is a helpmate to her husband. It's also true that women are helpmates to men. And I have often said to women married to, if you will permit the expression, a slime ball of a husband. You know, they wake up the morning after their wedding and realize what they done did. And I say to them, that's okay. You teach your husband to be a man. After all, you're his helpmate. And we have had now 25 years of godly mothers in Israel and daughters in Israel teaching us men how to care for them and their children. And some of you know the truth of this. It wasn't that you set out to be married and to care for your wife and children. It was that your wife set out for you and made you do it. (laughs) Is any man going to disagree with me? Huh? Paul, you want to disagree? And so, thank God for your church where God has blessed us with women. Mothers in Israel who have fed us humility, vulnerability, femininity, repentance, and it has given us men faith to follow them. so we love you very, very much. Stephen, do we love them? And those of you who have not become full adults yet, you have no higher aspiration than Mary and the women that are around you here. 
Okay. Please do not seize your destiny. <laughs> you know how. You know. Seize the day, seize your destiny, be all you can. Please don't do that. Right? In other words, do not listen to your commencement speeches. <laughs> They're all lies. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the women that you have placed us under, alongside, leading. I pray, Father, that there will be many generations to come of women who will serve Trinity Reformed Church through the fruit of their wombs, through the love of their marriages, through the godliness of their humility, through the songs that they sing while they're still 13 years old. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.